we, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, at the life of Jesus. This is the, this is the first written record we have. This is our way of getting as close as you can to, to the real Jesus. And over the past six weeks, we've looked at why that's so important. So here we are, six weeks in, and we finally cracked chapter three. So we're getting there, folks. And I, I hope that this, this is meaningful for you. Uh, we've decided to spend the majority of this year just living under the teaching of one of the Gospels and getting to know all the different facets of, of what it means to say we are part of the family of God in the name of Jesus. Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at that little episode where, where Jesus uh, claimed to have the ability to offer forgiveness of sins. You remember that heroic account when, when a paralyzed man comes with his friends? Heroic. I mean, nothing is going to stop them from getting to Jesus. So when the crowds are too big, when they can't get a ticket in the front row, they go up on top of the roof and they cut a hole and they lower him down. We tried to imagine, what would that look like if it happened here? I mean, they, they were relentless. Nothing was going to stop them from getting to Jesus. But... But when he said what he said in those moments, they expected healing. They never expected the earthquake of, of an announcement that Jesus gives. When he says, truly I tell you, your sins are forgiven. That set the religion p- police on high alert. Uh, and this week, we're going to see more of the same from Jesus. In fact, in some ways he one-ups himself. He makes a claim that is so over the top, so outrageous, that, that those same religi- religious leaders, they don't even have a word for it this time. But they're so furious that, that this reading ends on that, on that tumultuous note of saying that there was already a conspiracy directed towards the execution of Jesus. What is it that Jesus says now that gets him in such trouble? Well, uh, you could never... You could never mistake Jesus for someone who was just around to tweak a little bit of what had gone wrong, uh, as if I'm here to do a little reformation of religion, and then I'll be on my way. Uh, What Jesus is about is cataclysmic. Uh, In some ways, his arrival announces the end of religion, or at least the end of, of, of the of the catastrophic byproducts of human-made religious activity. Let me show you what I mean. Let's take a look at this passage. There's actually two incidents here. Both of them revolve around the subject of Sabbath. We're going to look at the second one first. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 3. And what we're going to see in both of these is a statement about the futility of religion. Uh, and, uh, and then we're going to see something about the finality of Jesus. So what's human-made and its futility, and what's divinely given and its finality. So that's the sort of the two parts of our message today. Uh, we're going to look in chapter 3, uh, something about the futility of religion. Here we have Jesus in the synagogue. It's the Sabbath day. Sabbath was Saturday for Jesus. It's Sunday for us. Don't get fixated on the day. It's the Sabbath principle. This, this idea that we need a day to be replenished soul deep to step aside from the frantic pace of life and just delight in the Lord and in God's people. This is a day for healing and restoration. And in the midst of all of this, 
enter a man who has a, who has a severely injured hand, a, a, a shriveled hand is how it's described. The leaders, the religion police, are on high alert. They've been tracking Jesus. They have some sort of a, like a GPS dot him or an air tag. They're following him wherever he goes, and they're trying to catch him. They want to catch him breaking their rules. They're looking to trap him. Notice how many of the questions of Jesus are not questions about knowledge they're looking to gain, but traps where they're wishing to, to take him down. In this case, it's all of these laws and regulations that surrounded the Sabbath. And Jesus kind of gets angry at the situation. And he goes ahead, and in full view of those who are watching, he does the one thing that was going to set them off. He heals the man. What do we learn here? Uh, first, we learn some things about the Sabbath and about, uh, about its purpose. Sabbath is a good idea. It was then, it is now. It's rooted in the healthy rhythms of work, which can be productive, and rest, which is essential. Pattern that is woven into the very fabric of creation. Sounds great. But as great as it sounds, over the course of, well, probably several centuries, religious leaders had clogged up the idea of Sabbath with so many minute details, rules, man-made laws that it was almost unworkable. There were 39 different types of activity that were forbidden on the Sabbath day. Interestingly, one of them was, hey, if you're out walking, you're not allowed to pick what you see in the fields, no berries or grain, and just munch on them. That would be considered work. Uh, in fact, they would go to extraordinary lengths. You weren't allowed to travel beyond a certain dense, uh, distance on the Sabbath. That was considered work. So here was the, here's what they would do. They, they understood travel as leaving home. They understood home as being any place where your stuff is. So they would go out the day before, and they'd go out 500 yards down the road, and they'd leave a toothbrush. And then they go another 500 yards and they'd leave a hairbrush. So they were never more than 500 yards away from their stuff from home. You get the sense that, that they'd missed the point? That they were just looking for ways to skirt around the edges instead of really just honoring this idea that ah, today is a breath of divinely given air, nourishment for the soul. And here's the reason Jesus is so angry about it. What is the Sabbath for? What is this day of rest all about? It's, it's about rejuvenation of the soul. It's about restoration. It's about replenishing. It's about healing what's broken in us. To deal with a shriveled hand is to do exactly what the Sabbath was about. To bring healing and encouragement. And yet they're more concerned about their rules than they are about the life and health of this man. Sad example, probably spiritually speaking at least, of, of not seeing the forest for the trees. And you get the feeling that the hearts of these people who are looking on might just have been as shriveled as the man's hand. They're insecure. They're fixated on their own regulations. They're tribally obsessed with their own rulings. They, they care more about this than they do about the man. They're judgmental. Why? Why have we come to this? The answer is religion. Religion. Or, or maybe, if we like another word, religiosity. Re- religion run amok. 
In verse 27, Jesus makes this profound statement. Chapter 2, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift that God gives to you. Not man for the Sabbath, as if we can tweak it and nuance it and shape it and add all of this heavy legislation to it. Maybe for just a minute, let's, let's not focus just on that, that one rule, the Sabbath. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But let's think about all of the guidelines that God gives for living. He says, of course, rest one day out of seven. He, he says, don't commit adultery. You know how destructive that is to your own soul, to the relationships of your life. Don't lie. Same reason. It just destroys integrity, destroys relationships. Could you try not to kill each other? I mean, that's, that's pretty devastating to human community. Don't steal each other's stuff. Don't take each other's wives and husbands. These are not arduous moral bars to get over. These are the bare standards of what it means to live together as human beings in loving community. But here's, I think, what Jesus is getting at. All of that law, all of those laws, there are, there are really probably two paradigms that we can that we can look at to understand how this works. On the one side, all of these laws, these moral laws, are given and they feel like a burden. Like this is the heavy weight that we have to bury, or have to carry. I come to Jesus, that's a good thing. Jesus heaps all the laws on me, that's a hard thing, and I weigh it out and said, oh, I'm willing to sacrifice the joy and freedom that comes in following these laws in exchange for Jesus. And you feel the weight of it. On the other side, the moral law is a blessing, a gift given by God. It leads to flourishing, a bright life, a good life, what Jesus called an abundant life. So imagine two different people, both trying to follow God, both wanting to honor the Sabbath, for example, both striving to follow some of God's other teachings, and in one case over here, there's a man, and this is just a tremendous burden, and he's buckling under the weight of it. And over here is somebody, shoulders back, eyes bright, looking at the world with enthusiasm because they have the opportunity to be able to live out something of God's dream and vision for their lives. One's enslaved, the other is free. One is given a burden, the other is given a gift. In verse 27, I think Jesus is really saying something revolutionary about our spiritual paradigms. He's contrasting them. They're radically different. The gospel of Jesus, which is good news, and the artifacts of religion, which is heavy and weighty and prone to so much error. Very different ways of approaching life and God. I think it's fair to say that most people, most people in the world, if they believe there is a God, believe that you relate to God by being good. All religion is based on that principle at some level. A million different variations to it. Some religions, they're 
they're kind of nationalistic or tribal. You connect to God by becoming part of our group, by taking on the practices and the markers of being part of that, that cluster of people. Other religions are more spiritualistic. You reach God by working through certain transformations and achieving, achieving higher levels of consciousness. Some, some religions are really formally legalistic. These are the ones that, that the world tends to be afraid of because on the, on the far edge, the fundamentalistic edge of it, these can be dangerous. Code of conduct. If you do it, God will reward you. If you don't, God will curse you. But they're all based on the same idea. This principle that if I obey, if I perform, I'm accepted and God will need to respond. Religion says, I obey and I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm already accepted, fully accepted in Jesus. And therefore, there's something in me that wants to obey. Just as an outflow of what I've been given. I just... I want to live in the direction that God has for me. In that sense, the gospel is not religion at all. Religion says, I give God something. He owes me something back. Because I'm a good person living a good life, He treats me as such. My actions, my decisions, my choices are like coins in a vending machine and out comes the good things from God. It's a transaction. Christianity says... God has already given you something, and it's not a vending machine. It's an abundant gift. Salvation, if you'd like to call it. Freedom, wholeness, healing, sheer grace. And we accept it, and then we gladly live out of the abundance of what we've received. If you take it a level deeper, one of the reasons religion, unchecked, has been such a destructive force in the world. And yeah, you heard me say that. Let's be honest. Is that in religion, you are saved by being better than everyone else. Rising above the masses, taking the narrow path, whatever it is. But you are saved by being better than others. So it becomes us, the good ones, and them, the bad ones. And it divides It divides societies. And then when religion gets twisted up with governments, it divides nations. When it gets twisted up with cultures, it divides people groups. And how much of the war has this underbelly of of religion run amok in it? In Christianity, you're not only saved if you admit that you're no better than anyone else. You're morally or spiritually or relationally inadequate. But... But out of that awareness, it's a new posture for living. Different paradigm. In religion, the purpose of obeying any law that's there, the purpose is to make sure that you're okay with God. And we're fine together. That's the purpose. You're working hard to do all of these things to assure yourself that you're a good person. And when God sees that, He'll notice and He'll reward you. And your prayers will get answered and your family will get blessed and you'll be protected and taken to heaven and all that stuff. And as a result, when you come to the law, you're concerned about the details because you want to get it exactly right because your hope hangs on getting it right. So if the obsession is around the law, then you want to push all of the buttons, make sure you've got it all figured out so you can be assured 
I've taken care of what I can do. I'm a good person. I got everything right. But what you're probably not going to do is look at the broad meaning of it, the broad motive for the law. In fact, you're going to write into the moral law all kinds of little details that weren't really there, just trying to work it out. But when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, God has a, the law of God has a different function entirely. It's, it's there to take us out of ourselves, to look beyond ourselves. How much of the law is about seeing broadly the world around us and caring for them? I mean, it's there in, in the big one, love your neighbor as yourself. But how much of the rest of the law is just working that out? Don't steal their stuff. Don't steal their family. Don't. Don't murder your neighbors. I mean, it sounds crass, but, but this is about living together the kind of life God had in mind. In the gospel, whenever you see the law of God, there's something humbling about it. We say, I can't, I can't live up to that. And yet God has loved me in spite of it. And I'm going to do my best to try and resemble the one who's given that gift. I'm going to live a Jesus-centered life. In other words, religion, you'd look at the details of the law, all these human-made nuances and additions in the gospel. You look at the broad motive for the law. Why is it that God has a vested interest in how we live our lives? Religion, you feel better when you're obeying the gospel, just humbles you. In fact, the text goes even further here. If you have a look in, in chapter 3, verse 6, um, it's not just Jesus that's angry about this situation. It feels like everybody's angry, doesn't it? There's the Pharisees, the religion police, and this other group, the Herodians. And what are they up to? They're plotting the execution of Jesus. Hey, we're only in chapter 3. Like, we're just getting going. It, I mean, it didn't take long for the real truth that Jesus brings to do what real truth always does. It's disruptive. Who are these groups? The Pharisees. Well, they're the religion police. Who are the Herodians? Who do you think they're allied with? It's kind of there in their name. Herod. Who are the Herods? Rome would come. They would take over a country. They would eject all of the country's leaders. They would bring in their own. And the place where Jesus was living in ancient Israel, the Herods were Rome's appointed vassal leaders. So they would bring in these foreign leaders, and then they would bring in the whole apparatus of Roman and Greek culture. Their, their sexual morality, their understanding of the body and pluralism and religion and spirituality. And so if you were living under that, you just you learned to resent everything about it. But not the Herodians. They sort of said, hey, why don't we just pitch in with the powers that be? Let's ally ourselves with them and we'll get through this and we'll come out the other side with a greater share of power or prosperity or whatever. So you see what's going on. You have the Pharisees. They're kind of like, kind of like the red states, right? We're all about putting up walls. And let's keep ourselves safe inside. Let's preserve our traditions, high moral fiber, uh, but the rest of the world are to be afraid of. Stay away. And then you have the Herodians, kind of like the blue states. Let's be progressive, fair-minded. Let's, uh, let's have a forward-thinking view about the world. 
They are as different as different can be, but they, the one thing they agreed on was this. We need to get rid of Jesus. We need to get rid of Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is neither religion nor a religion. It's neither politics or apolitics. It's, it's not traditional moral values or do whatever you want as long as it feels good to you. It's something entirely new. Remember Jesus meets Nicodemus late at night, John 3, beautiful chapter. You know John 3. And in the middle of that nocturnal encounter, Nicodemus, Pharisee, religion police, uh, red state. (laughs) What does Jesus say to him? You're lost. You're lost. You need to start again. You must be born again. I mean, here's a person who's trying to live that be good and follow all the rules kind of life. And Jesus says, I think you're lost, my friend. And then in the very next chapter, uh, though he's a lot nicer about it than it is with Nicodemus, he meets a woman. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? Multiple husbands, multiple lovers. A catastrophic effect of, of a life where she's just been passed from man to man to man without power. Now she's living in another relationship with someone she's not married to. What does Jesus say? You can change. You can start again. Repent. There's basically two approaches to life here. There's moral conformity. I'm going to check all the boxes and live an appropriately good life, and my hope will be in that. Or maybe there's self-discovery. I'm going to decide on my own what is right and true and just find my own trajectory through the world. But according to the Bible, neither one gets you home. Because in both ways, you are your own Savior. person who, who says, look, I get to decide what's right and wrong for me. I choose my own way. I mean, obviously, they're looking to themselves as, as the architect of salvation. But also the person over here says, I'm going to obey the law and everything in it. That way God has to. He's obligated under the terms of this relationship, obligated to take me home. You're being your own savior too, right? Who's responsible for it? You are. And both, both of you are missing the message of Jesus. And both of you, us, me, (laughs) we are subject to the same kind of self-righteousness. The moralist says the good people are in, bad people are about. Of course, we're the good people. That's why you're all here. We're the good ones. And we'll pray for the bad ones. Heaven forbid they show up here because they're really disruptive. But we'll pray for them. Yeah. But in secular society, self-discovery, people would say something very similar. The progressive, open-minded people, they're in. The judgmental people, bigots, often religious people, they're out. And of course, we're the open-minded people. We're fine. The GTA, there is a tremendous amount of self-righteousness about self-righteousness. It's crazy. We are this post-Christian, increasingly secular part of the world, and we are so self-righteous about our self-righteousness. We're so much better than other people who think that they're better than other people. Think about that for a second. Secularism, I think it leads to as much superiority and self-righteousness as bad religion. It's not going to be the way that we heal the disagreements and the divisions that have scarred our world. The gospel, Jesus, doesn't say anything remotely similar to 
the good are in, the bad are out. Or the open-minded are in, the judgmental are out. The Gospel says that the humble are received. Those who come with the name of Jesus on their lips and in their hearts, they're in. And those who are so proud they can't get beyond their own self-righteousness, they're out. And whenever it says that, I think it says it with sadness, and so should we. You never talk about somebody who's outside of receiving God's love because they've jammed up that conduit. You never talk about that without tears in your eyes. Woe be the church when we approach those who are lost with hatred, anger, and scorn. The Gospel says that people who know they're not better than anyone else, that they're not more open-minded, they're not more moral, that they're not better than others, they are closer to God at that moment than they have ever been. I better conclude this. We only had two points, so let me get to the other points. Hey, just just quick summary. Religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Leads to self-righteousness, spiritual deadness. But, but humility, humility, the gospel says, I'm accepted through Jesus, therefore I want to obey. Make sense? So, we have the futility of religion. And then we have... Well, we have Jesus, and we have the finality of Jesus. How can Jesus pull this off? You see, that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians were concerned about. Not just that he said it, but that he claimed that he had the power to do it. Religion is over because I'm here. Remarkable. But how can he say that? Look again in chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. Incredible verses. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And here it comes. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's amazing. Uh, first of all, I mean, he, he says we need Sabbath, of course. doesn't say the Sabbath was made just for the Jewish people. doesn't say the Sabbath is made for my followers. The, the, the Jesus people. He doesn't say it's just for certain people. It says the Sabbath is made for humanity. You have to rest. Don't overdo it. All accelerator, no brakes. You have to put on the brakes from time to time. So you see Jesus affirming the basic life-giving principle of Sabbath. But over and over again, he squashes, he tramples on all these little side rules and legislations that have crept up around it. He's going to blow away the whole religious paradigm. So we're not going to do that stuff anymore. How dare he say that? Where does he get off saying something like that? The answer is in verse 28. I, Jesus says, I, the Son of Man, which is what he calls himself, the Son of Man, am Lord even of the Sabbath. What? I mean, what did he just say? Let's see the magnitude of what he said. He didn't say, I have authority given to me by God to change these rules about the Sabbath. He could have said it that way. He didn't even say, I'm Lord over the Sabbath, or something like that. No. He says, I, the Son of Man, am Lord of the Sabbath. You know the word Sabbath just means rest, like deep down peace. The, the word shalom, kind of a good synonym for it. Jesus is saying, I am the Lord's rest. I am the source of the deep rest that you need. I am the Sabbath. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to give you that 
Not just that one day a week rest, but to give you that as a taste of the deep down divine rest that God is the source of. And here I am. Maybe you think we're reading too much into the passage, but Jesus says exactly that. Matthew 11. I know for some of you this is a favorite verse. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There it is. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Over the top. Just an outrageous claim. Burst through all the categories people had. And so what I thought we could do just for our last few minutes is unpack that expression. I want to look with you at the Lordness of Jesus, what it means to say He is Lord over it, and at the Sabbathness of Jesus. And I realize neither one of those are real words. We just kind of made them up. But we'll look at the Lordness of Jesus and the Sabbathness of Jesus. Remember two weeks ago, Jesus says, I forgive you all of your sins. What we said about that is that He is claiming that at some level, ultimately, all sin is against Him. Because you can't forgive somebody else. I can't say, James, I forgive the sins that Barry committed against you. Only, only you can say that to Barry, right? But at Jesus saying, I forgive you your sins, he's placing himself in a position of, of central authority, recognizing that all sin at some level is directed against him. Who can say that? There's only one entity in creation that can say that. And that is the architect of creation, the author, the creator. Over and over again, you you see this kind of self-consciousness of Jesus. He knows who he is. And his understanding is unprecedented. He, He knows there is a God uncreated, beginningless, infinitely transcendent above creation who made the world, who keeps the universe going. Every molecule, every star being held up by the power of God And Jesus says again and again in so many ways, that's who I am. On every page, even in the most offhanded comments. I love the offhanded comments. Luke 10, great place. Jesus is talking about possession. And he just kind of throws this little comment off the cuff. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You saw what? (laughs) Yes, I remember back before the universe was created, I saw Lucifer go bad. It was terrible. But I was around. I knew him. What? Another place in Matthew. Again, almost offhanded. Jesus says, I keep sending you prophets and sages. Now wait a minute. He doesn't say, I'm the next in a long line of prophets and sages sent by God. No, I am the one who's been sending all of these people to you for all of the centuries. And to prove that that's how he understood his mission. Every prophet that we know of in Scripture, before they they communicate a word from God, they always begin the same way. Thus saith the Lord. And then comes whatever revelation God has to give. I defy you to find any place in Scripture where Jesus says that. He's not a thus saith the Lord prophet in a long line of succession. What does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you. You feel the weight of that claim? Again, his self-consciousness is just off the map. This is the, the lordship of Jesus. Hmm. So what are you going to do about that? 
You know what I mean? In the, in the GTA, we, we've got a lot of people who are willing to say, uh, I believe in Jesus. Like I, I believe he's a great teacher. I love his teachings. I love what he stands for. I love the life that he lived. But stop short of saying, I believe that he is the unique and divine son of God. And in saying that, there's something admirable, like God, God can use these openings in our lives, but there's something missing. It's almost as if we've, we've heard his teaching, but we haven't really heard it. Because we haven't heard that. This is how Tom Wright puts it, N.T. Wright. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself has walked into our midst. Because Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world, or it's a sham, a nonsense. Most of us, N.T. Wright says, most of us unable to cope with saying either of these things condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Not to put too fine a point on it, but do you think maybe some of us are living in the misty world in between that Wright is talking about? We pray to Jesus sometimes, maybe not a lot, but occasionally. We come to church when we can. We get into trouble and we pray furiously, but then for the most part our lives get busy and we ignore him again. Listen, I... Either he can't hear you at all because he's not who he says he is. Or else, if he is, how dare we approach him so nonchalantly, so recklessly, so carelessly. Because either he is absolutely who he said he is and he is the still point in your life around which everything else can revolve. Or it's all nonsense. But you can't just play with him. Like he's some divine teddy bear that you can grab off the shelf and hug for a while and then put back. The Lord of heaven and earth. The Lordness of Jesus. Let's, let's just close by thinking about the Sabbathness of Jesus. When he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, I will give you rest. What does that mean? The Bible talks a lot about the need for rest. Uh, and look, we're not focused so much on, uh, on, on a Sabbath way of living. We've taught about that. We taught during the fall. We'll teach every year about that. But, but I just want to say one or two things about it, and then we'll close. Uh, there, are, there are multiple levels to rest, but there's at least two. Uh, the first level is, yeah, you do need, you do need to take time off from work not just the work of your paycheck but the work of life you need to you need to have downtime physical and mental time for rest but there's another level of rest that i i just want to call you to or invite you to this deeper level genesis 1 god creates the heavens and earth six days diverse beautiful and at the end of six days it says god do you think he was out of breath Tired, muscle fatigue, needed some Robaxa set and Rogaine. No, Rogaine's for hair loss, isn't it? (laughs) 
Who knows? <laughs> no. So if it doesn't mean that he was exhausted and he needed rest, what could it mean? The answer, I think, is that this rest is, is what it looks like when you are so utterly satisfied with what you have done or with what has been done that you just look and say, it was good. In fact, God said at the end, it was very good. And he rested. What does it mean to rest? It means to be so satisfied with what's going on in your life that you can walk away from it. You can say, I can let it go. I can set it down and walk away. And be honest, how many of you can do that on your day off? I'm good. God's got this. Doesn't all hang on me and my performance. It's good. And then you rest. Hey, some of you know the story. If you don't, it's, well, it's not my fault because I've talked about it lots. <laughs> the story of Eric Liddell, Scottish runner, competed in the 1924 Olympics. His life was the subject of a movie, an Oscar winner from way back in 1982, which doesn't feel so way back anymore, does it? Uh, Chariots of Fire, actually based on the story of two runners, friends, Eric Liddell and Harold Abrams, both Olympians, both competing, both favorites to medal. Uh, Liddell's a Christian, and he makes a decision, a controversial one, that he will not race on the Sabbath. He wouldn't run on Sunday. And he lost out on a gold medal for his decision. And the movie explores these themes of, of faith and rest and motivation. Harold Abrahams, the the other subject of the movie, is working very hard in order to win. He's a driven guy, but the drivenness is pathological in his life. In fact, there is this line that he gets. Talking about when the gun goes off, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. You imagine the weight of that? All hangs on me. My performance. My obedience. Eric Liddell just wanted to please God, knowing that God had already accepted him. And there's this great quote. I have this on a plaque on my wall in the office here. He says to his sister just before going out on the track, he says, Sister, you know, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Harold Abrahams, he was weary even when he was resting. Eric Liddell was fully alive even when he was exerting himself. Why? There is a work underneath our work that we need to rest from. And for almost all of us, I mean, unless God comes into our lives, we're working constantly to prove ourselves, to convince other people and ourselves and God that, that we're good enough. And that work is never over until we rest in the gospel. Because the gospel ends the same way that the Bible begins. God looks out over the world that he made. It was good. And he rests. It is finished, he said. Jesus is hauled out to the garbage pits outside of town. He's drawn up to the summit of a hill and there he's nailed to a cross. And, and after bearing that weight for hours in the Nazarene sun, he finally utters those climactic words. You remember? 
it is finished. Same word. Same purpose. The great act of God had been accomplished. Creation, now redemption. What's the outcome? The ability to rest. It's done. No more straining. No more striving. Jesus says, I've completed the work. I've lived the life. I've died the death. You can rest in what I've accomplished. Deep, deep rest. I want you to imagine a scene with me. You just close your eyes, and then we're going to move from this moment to the table. I just It's not hard to imagine that in that first generation of followers, that there were... There were Christians with Roman neighbors. So I want you to imagine a conversation between a follower of Jesus and their Roman neighbor. And the neighbor says, hey, I hear you're a Christian. I think that's great. I love religion. I love all the pageantry. We have so many gods and great temples and statues. Where do you Christians go to temple? Where is your temple? And the Christian replies, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. He's fulfilled it. He's the final temple. We don't need that anymore. The neighbor would say, well, you have no temple. Where do your priests operate? We don't have any priests. Jesus is our priest. He's the final priest. He's put the rest of the priests out of business. We don't need them as mediators. He's the mediator. He's brought us to God. No temple, no priests. Where in the world do you go to offer your sacrifices, the things that make you acceptable to God? Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't need anything more. And finally the neighbor says, what kind of religion is this? And maybe you and I, along with that first century Christian, would say, it's no kind of religion at all. We didn't get a system. We got a person. We don't have a God who is so high up that we needed the ladders of religion to reach Him. He came down to us. Died for us. We don't need religion anymore. We have Jesus. You join me as we pray. Our Father, we... We invite you into these moments. You know the work that needs to happen in each of our lives. And for many of us, it's the need for rest. That deep down rest of soul that comes when we hear Jesus on the cross saying, it's finished. The ability to be satisfied with what God has done in our lives so that we can can pick up and leave our little bits of work and and know that it's okay. That deep inside, what's most important has already been accomplished. Lord, we don't want to live lives plagued by anxiety or self-condemnation or judgment. We want to have lives of grace. Our lives revolving around You. We pray that You would help us in that. Help us as we receive what You have taught us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.